Well, as we begin our reading in John chapter 9 and verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. The word there is literally sin, martia. And now that you say we see, your, again, sin, your guilt remains. Language is an interesting thing. I remember when I was in high school, we had a foreign exchange student. didn't live in my house, lived in a friend of mine's house who came up. If I remember right, I think he was from Brazil or something. And, and he knew English, but his English was a little bit broken. You'd have to explain some things once in a while. If I remember right, one of the things that, or the first things that eluded him, somebody said something and he says, oh, I, I get the picture. And the guy was like, what? You, what, what picture? You get the picture? So then they had to explain to him, oh, that means... That means I, I understand. I, I see it clearly. I, I get the picture. And then uh, after that, whenever something would come up like that, he would say, ah, oh, I get the picture. <laughs> he ended up using that term way more than any of the rest of us did. But, <laughs> but, but he thought that was pretty cool. But when you think about it, a word depends so much on context. If you were to think of one simple three-letter word, the word run, it's a good thing in baseball. It's a bad thing if you're painting. Bad thing, I would think, if you're talking about putting on nylons or something like that. Just talk about a child running. The water's running. And context is the key. Trunk. Trunk of a car. Trunk of a tree. Trunk of an elephant. And then when you add in things like, hold your horses. <laughs> Get the picture? <laughs> it can be a confusing thing. And the reason I bring that up is Jesus uses that a lot. He'll say, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. It's used a lot of different images like that. If anybody's thirsty, let them come to me and drink and I'll give them the living water. When somebody asks him a question or makes a statement, he'll often take like the, the language and the way that that person states it and then kind of turn it to get a greater lesson out of it. Make a spiritual point. Now, I'm not in favor of interpreting everything spiritually. I think that the Bible is written with literal purposes in mind. And even when they use allegorical language or, or try to make a spiritual point, there's still a literal purpose that is intended with that spiritual point. And so I don't think that we can just go around making everything mean something else. That's not the point. But in this passage, Jesus clearly does just that. It's kind of like with the woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus sitting by the well and she comes out to draw water. And Jesus just asks her for a drink. And she says, why would you ask me for a drink? We don't have any dealings with you. I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. There's a couple boundaries there that he was crossing. And she said, we don't have any dealings with you. And he says, well, if you'd have known who it was that asked you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would have given you a drink. A drink of living water. He takes the water in the well and he turns it into a whole new conversation about eternal life and spiritual reality. And she caught hold of it and pretty soon was no longer interested in the water in the well. Wanted to know about the water within him that she could have within her. Well, that's actually what Jesus is doing at this point here. Jesus comes out of the temple and he sees this blind man sitting there begging and Jesus heals him. He gives him his sight. Jesus is going to take the healing of this blind man and he's going to talk about a whole different level of sight. He healed him of a physical blindness. Jesus is going to give him not only a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. And then what he's going to do is he's going to take that spiritual healing and apply it not just to that person, but to others. As Jesus comes into this man's life and heals him of his physical blindness, he has the desire also to heal him of his spiritual blindness, 
which we actually all come into this world with. The Bible tells us that we come into this world in darkness. We come into this world blind. And then we also have another strike against us because Satan is trying to keep us there. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 4 says the God of this world has blinded us. And so we have this blindness and Jesus wants to open the eyes of the blind. And as we looked at in the previous weeks, there's many passages in the Old Testament that talk about the darkness, the blindness of humanity, and how that when the Messiah came, He would give sight to the blind. And Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. And well, as we look at it here this morning, we're going to look uh, just at two things. He ends up comparing these two things. The two things are represented in the previously blind person. And in Him, we're going to see spiritual sight. And in the Pharisees that uh, join into the conversation, we're going to see a spiritual blindness. And Jesus is going to compare those two things. The first thing that we see that describes spiritual sight or what happens when somebody gets that spiritual sight is we see that it's divinely initiated. Jesus is the one that or initiates this cure. Jesus is the one that comes to Him. And that's the same way that it works with us. We don't seek after God. God seeks after us. We're the ones that are lost. Jesus finds us. He comes seeking after us. That's exactly what happens with this guy. Remember when we first encounter him back at the beginning of John chapter 9, it says that Jesus is leaving the temple. He was leaving a crowd that wanted to kill him. And he's escaping from there and he comes out and it says that he, he sees this man that was blind sitting outside the temple. And he stops. And then he heals the guy and then goes on. Later on in the chapter, Jesus hears that he's been kicked out of the synagogue. And what does it say? He went and found him. Jesus goes out to find him. He pursues him. You know, this guy couldn't give himself sight. Only Christ could give him sight. And the same thing is true on a spiritual level as well. You can't take off the blinders spiritually. God has to act. To be able to gain spiritual sight is an act of God. It's not something we have control over. But we do, and we'll see this shortly, have to respond. As we look at this idea of spiritual sight, what has to happen? First of all, it's divinely initiated. I like the way uh, John Chrysostom, who's one of the early church leaders, said, he said, the Jews cast him out of the temple and the Lord of the temple found him. He went and found him. Jesus knows that he's been cast out. It means you're unwelcome, you're unaccepted, and Jesus goes to make him accepted. You know, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus described his ministry this way. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He comes to pursue after us. We all, just like Isaiah had talked about back in Isaiah chapter 52, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're lost. And then the rest of that chapter is about the Messiah coming and redeeming us, finding us. And you know what? It really has to be that way. Because the fact of the matter is, is we will not seek out God. Human nature is depraved. We are sold unto sin. And and we do not, in and of ourselves, have an appetite for God and seek after God. God, that is a work of God that He has to do within our hearts. Romans chapter 3 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. We have a depraved nature before God if left in our sinfulness. But you know what? That's the whole point is we're not left in our sinfulness. Jesus Christ came into this world to to seek us out, to, to save us. He puts sight within us, the ability to see spiritually, to be able to understand, to be able to get the picture. That's why he said back in John chapter 6, when we were there in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. You think about it, Christ is seeking us in a number of different ways. One, externally, because he came to provide a way of salvation, and he came and he went to that cross to die on that cross for us to pay for our sins so that we could have 
an eternal life in Him. So He He looks for us. He seeks us out externally through His actions. But then He also seeks us out internally because it says nobody can come to the Father unless the Father draws Him. Nobody can come to Christ unless the Father draws Him. Which means that He is involved in your heart. That He does a work in your heart where He draws you to Himself. Theologians at this point usually look at the word call because it's used in this way many times within Scripture. God calls us to Christ. Calls us to Himself. Which is an effective thing in our hearts as we respond to it. And so the first thing that we see in this man's spiritual sight that would also apply to ours is that it is divinely initiated. We don't have an appetite for the things of God or for God Himself, but God has to do that work within our hearts. He has to initiate that. He has to regenerate that that dead heart within us. He has to give sight to the blind. And that is exactly the kind of thing that He does. As we see it in this man's experience and can relate it to our own But then not only is spiritual sight divinely initiated, it is also focused. It's focused where? It's focused on Christ. Notice in the passage, as Jesus heard that they had cast Him out, and having found Him, He said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is He, sir, that I may believe in Him? Who is He? In verse 11, when they first asked Him, How were you healed? How were you given your sight? This is how He referred to Jesus. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. The man called Jesus. Now, at this point, even right at the beginning, he's a step up above the Pharisees. You want to know why? Because all the way through this passage, the Pharisees will not call him by name. They do not use the name Jesus through the whole thing. I don't know if it's just uh, this pure hatred they have for him or the fear of other people catching his name. Have you ever noticed in politics, politicians don't like to use each other's names. Why? Because even if it's used in a negative way, it still kind of gives them a name recognition, which is a pretty powerful thing in politics. They keep calling him that man. We know that this man is a sinner. We know that this man is not from God. This man, this man, this man. At least the blind guy that's now healed, at least he says, the man called Jesus. That's who healed me. But, but he didn't stay there. He progressed. Because they continue to badger him about it because they want him to tell the story over and over and over because they're, fi- they're trying to find a discrepancy. They're trying to find some way that they can either dis- discount the miracle or discount how it happened. They're trying to get rid of it in any way that they can. But as we look a little bit farther, when you get to verse 17, notice what it says. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. Now, he's growing. Or maybe at least he's clarifying. They're asking him, this guy that opened your eyes, what do you, what do you think? You were, you were the one that actually experienced it. What do you think of him? And what they want him to say is, oh, it really doesn't have anything to do with him. It's, it's God. God healed me and got nothing to do with him. That's what they try to lead him into, but he won't go there. He said, you know what I think? I think he's a prophet. Now he's getting closer. Why? Because, well, Moses talked about one. Another prophet would arise like unto Moses, speaking of the Messiah. And so he's getting close. But is he there yet? Has his spiritual eyes been opened? No, he's not there yet. Why? Because is is believing in Jesus as a prophet, does that save you? No. Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the point he has to come to. Actually, in in the translation that we're using, the words look different. But he actually, in both times, uh, refers to him as Lord. In, In verse 36, it says he answered, who is he? Sir, um, in the Greek language, it's the word kurios, which actually means Lord. I think it's probably actually wise to translate it sir in this case because that's how he's using it. He's not using Lord as in my Lord and my God. 
He's using the word Lord, kind of like in the Old English when they would have lords and ladies. And so it was a, just a statement of respect, like sir. And so they use that word here. But it's actually the same word in both cases. When he does worship him as the Lord, then he's using the word, capital letter L, as in my Lord and my God, and he worships him. And it's actually the same word in both cases. Notice in verse 38 that that's exactly the point where he comes to. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now his eyes are open. What is the point you have to come to to have that spiritual sight, to have your eyes open and and receive Christ? You have to recognize that He's the Savior of the world. That He is the Son of Man. Son of Man comes all the way back from Daniel chapter 7 where it's referring to the coming of the Messiah. And so Christ was clearly portraying Himself as the Messiah that would come for Israel and the Savior of the world. And He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Not do you believe in a prophet? Do you accept me as a prophet? Do you think I'm a good guy? Nothing like that. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And He says, who is He? And he says, I'm him. Now, it's kind of interesting because Jesus says, you have both seen him and he's the one talking to you now. But you know what? He hadn't seen Christ. He hadn't seen him physically. If you look at the unfolding of the story, Jesus spits in some dirt, makes it into mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, and then sends him to the pool of Siloam and he leaves. It goes a different way. When he heads to the pool of Siloam, he hasn't received his height yet. He hasn't been healed yet. And so he hasn't seen Christ. And apparently when Jesus comes up to him and he says, hey, have you believed in the Son of Man? Apparently he didn't recognize his voice either because he says, who is he? And Jesus says, you've seen him. He can't mean with his physical eyes, but Jesus is telling him, look, your eyes are being opened. You've seen him. And this guy receives his spiritual sight. And so it's focused on Christ. And that's the only way that it can be. You know, I remember when, when I first got around church more, when I started dating Lisa and started going to church with her family, I thought church was really interesting. And I loved some of the things that I was learning about and hearing about. And... For a year and a half, I went to church like that. Not a Christian. If you'd asked me, I would have told you I was one, but I didn't really understand the whole thing. Why? Because I was blind. And for a year and a half, I go and I'm hearing these things. But you know what my thought is? I knew that Jesus was the Son of God. I knew all that Christmas and Easter stuff. Born of a virgin. Raised again from the dead. I didn't doubt the, the truth of those things. I knew all those things happened. But you know what I didn't get? I didn't see a connection to me with the cross. And you know why that is? Well, because I grew up saying my prayers at night when I went to bed, which were good things. My mom would come in and tuck us in, and we do now I lay me down to sleep. Pray, Lord, my soul to keep. Pray for every extended family member you could think of, because that kept you up a little later. When you got a little bit older, she taught you the Lord's Prayer, or some might call it the Disciples' Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. A few times I talked to God just about random things. My dog got hit by a car, that kind of thing. I remember that. And so I just kind of always figured that, you know what, God and I, we're fine. I never really realized the depravity, the sinfulness within me. Now, if you'd asked me, have you sinned? Well, of course I've sinned. Everybody's sinned, but I didn't think that's all that big a deal. Why? One, because everybody seems to do it. And two, despite my sin, I thought I was a pretty good guy. So I figured God did too. But I was wrong. The morning that I accepted Christ as my Savior, that's the one thing that changed. Like I said, I already knew Jesus was born of the Virgin, that He was the Son of God, that He died on the cross and rose again from the dead. I knew that He did those things. But I didn't make a connection between that and me. That connection has to be there. I didn't realize that I needed Him to die on that cross for me to be forgiven, for me to be saved. My sins had to be paid for before a just God. I remember thinking highly of Jesus, but didn't really understand what He had to do with my relationship with God because me and the Father, we got it okay. No, you don't. Nobody has a relationship with the Father except through the Son. And that's the point. Jesus has to go back to this guy and say, do you believe 
in the Son of Man, which is Christ. It's focused on Christ. It has to be in Christ. It can't be focused in a church. It can't be focused in your quality of life or your good deeds that you do. It has to be totally focused in Christ. And that's exactly what we see happening here. That's what gives this guy this spiritual eyesight is that focus on Christ. Now notice also that it's also willingly received. As we said before, God has to initiate it. God has to take that first step. God is sovereign. But our will is involved as well. Because God exercises His will doesn't mean we don't exercise our will. It means our two wills come together is what it means. When God does that active work in our heart giving us spiritual eyesight, then our will conforms to God's will and we willingly put our faith in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always smooth. I think of the Apostle Paul. I don't know that you'd call his salvation experience smooth because here's a guy that was blinded to Christ as well and he's uh, trying to get rid of Christianity and trying to stomp out the Gospel. And on his way to Damascus to go to try to arrest Christians up in Damascus, Jesus appears to him and a bright light shines and it blinds him and he falls to the ground. And Jesus says to him, why are you kicking against the goad? The goad is a rod used for hurting animals. It's sharp on one end to give them a little jab in the right place at the right time to get them moving in the right direction. Christ has been goading Paul trying to get his attention. And Paul is not having anything to do with it, not recognizing it at all. Finally, Jesus shows up in front of him and blinds him. And he says, why are you kicking against the goad? You know, as I told you before, my own testimony, I struggled for... Uh, that whole church service before I finally yielded to Christ. But you know what? The point is I yielded. And, I, and at that moment, I was excited to yield to Him. I was thrilled to be saved. I was thrilled to be understanding who Christ was at that moment and putting my faith in Him. The Apostle Paul would be blind for three days. And then he would be given his sight back in much more than just his physical sight, a spiritual sight as well. Why? Because God had chosen him to be a light among the Gentiles. God's will and our will come together in this kind of thing. Isn't it amazing how quick and easy it is? Now, granted, he was just given sight and never had it before, so that's an amazing thing. But you know, also when you stop and think about it, other than his own sight being restored to him, he had never seen a miracle. Couldn't have. He was blind for all those. Pharisees and those people have seen miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're blind. This guy has never seen a miracle, but he has received a miracle of sight, and now he is so quick to believe. He's so eager to believe. When Jesus comes and says, Have you believed on the Son of God or the Son of Man? The guy says, Just tell me who he is. I'm ready. He is so eager. In the crowd, we don't see that. Remember back in chapter 6 and verse 30? It says, They said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You know when that was? You do, because we've studied through all the way up to this point. This is after the wedding where he already changed the water into wine and everybody drank and said, well, that's the best wine. This is after he healed the guy at the pool that was sitting along the pool. This is after he healed the official son without even going there. This is after he fed over 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. And after he walked on water and they say, what's the work of God? And he says, the work of God is to believe on the one whom he sent. And they said, okay, show us a sign. You see, even with all these things done right in front of them, they were totally blind. You know what? I don't know to this day how in the world for a year and a half I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights, faithfully uh, to all those services and hearing the Gospel steadily for a year and a half and I still had no clue. I still was totally blind. And then all of a sudden I could see it. And when I could see it, now I wanted it. And my will conformed to God's. And that's exactly what we see happening with this 
Yeah. When we get to John chapter 12, he's going to tell them, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So at some point the blindness becomes permanent. It becomes judicial on God's part. But then we also see with this spiritual sight, we see that it's resulting in worship. Because as soon as Jesus points out to him, he says, I am him, the guy instantly confesses his faith in him as the Lord, and he falls at his feet and worships him. That's what worshipers do. Back in John chapter 4, when Jesus had that discussion with the woman at the well, she said, you know what, you guys say we're supposed to worship this way. We say we're supposed to worship this way. What's the truth? Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So when you receive your receive spiritual sight of the Lord, and your will bends and you respond correctly and you put your faith in Christ, you know, worshiping becomes like breathing after that. I tell that to Lisa once in a while. Once in a while, she'll ask me, she says, is it hard to love me? I said, yeah, it's hard as breathing. Because I just do love you. With God, is it hard to worship God? Yeah, about like breathing. When your eyes are open and you see what Christ did for you and how much He loves you, man, it's just natural to love Him back. You know, until that point, we're kind of positioning ourselves on the throne like we saw last week with the obstinance of unbelief and not wanting to be knocked off the throne, but the moment that you have that spiritual eyesight, all of a sudden you're right down there on the ground worshiping. You know, that's one of the things I love. I mean, I know worship takes on a lot more forms. This is worship as we look, dig into God's Word. Singing is worship. Praying is worship. Uh, all of it's worship. There's lots of different forms of worship. But you know, one of the things that I've loved down through the years, and, and, uh, and I think our mu- music ministry is improving vastly lately. Kathy's always been great with the piano and everything, but uh, we got more people involved now, and it's getting better. But for 25 years, it was just pretty much me, and I'm no song leader. But you know what I always loved is if we just had a simple music ministry, but you know what? People come into church here, and I, I commonly hear from visitors that leave, wow, you guys actually sing. You're just a little group, but you're, you're kind of, your people are belting it out. Yeah, why? It's not about us. It's about him. And he's worth it, right? I remember when I first went into church, I thought, nobody's getting me to sing. Nobody's hearing me. And they probably rued the day that I decided this looked like too much fun to pass up and started to join in. But you know what? People with spiritual eyesight worship. This guy got his spiritual eyesight, and that's what he does. He, he worships. Well, then on the other side of the coin, and I'm going to be quick with it, I promise. On the other side, we see a spiritual blindness. Some of this we can kind of see mirrored in the things that we looked at last week as we looked at the obstinance of unbelief. But as we look at the spiritual blindness, first of all, we notice that it is divinely judged. After this guy puts his, his faith in Christ, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now that might catch your attention right off the bat. I imagine it probably did because when we're back in chapter 3, in verse 317, he said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And again in John, in chapter 12, it's going to say, If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Well, how is it then that in this passage, Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment... I came into the world. What Jesus is saying is that He did come into the world to save the world, not to judge the world. But here's the thing. When He comes into the world to save the world, some people put their faith in Him and others do not. Some people believe 
and rejoice in Him and others reject and persecute Him. And so what happens is it makes a distinction. It makes a judgment. It ends up separating people. Just like we saw earlier in chapter 9, it says they were divided because one side said, well, He did it on the Sabbath and anybody who does something like that on the Sabbath can't be from God. And the other side would say, hey, look, nobody can heal somebody who has been blind from birth unless they're from God. And so what did it do? It made a division. The reason He came into the world was not judgment. It was salvation, redemption. But the result of His coming into the world also includes judgment. I, I think we, uh, he bears that out if we just read the next verse. right? From, in chapter 12, verse 47, he says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But notice verse 48, it says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So he's saying, look, I didn't come for the purpose of judging. I came for the purpose of saving. But many people are going to reject that salvation. And so the result of their rejection is going to be judgment. The one man was so willingly desirous to believe in the Son of Man. You have a whole host of people that are willfully ignorant. The desire to not know. That are determined to not see the miracles of Christ or to not accept the miracles of Christ, or at least to not accept the interpretation of what those miracles point to. They are the sign that He is the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, and they refuse to go there. They're willfully ignorant. You know, why do people do that? Why did I do that for a year now? Well, it's because of our pride. We don't want to let go of that. Jesus taught that in Luke 18. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank You that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back His hand. In order to submit to the Gospel of Christ, you have to humble yourself for Him. And then you go home justified. If you, in your pride, think you got it handled on your own, well, then you just stay in your blindness. And then lastly, totally accountable. Because the Pharisees chime in at this point, And they say, hey, are, are we part of the blind people that you're talking about? And Jesus says, you know, if you were blind, if you recognized your blindness, you could be removed of your sin. But you say that you have sight. And they were refusing to acknowledge their condition before God. No, no, we're good. We're the ones in control here. We're the ones in charge. We see clearly what was their statement about him. That he's not from God, that he's not the Christ, and that he's a sinner. We see clearly this is who you are. And Jesus says, therefore, you remain in your blindness. It's, it's exactly what we dealt with last week, that, that obstinance in their unbelief. John Piper said this about this situation. He says that this means that there is a kind of blindness, a blindness rooted in willful rebellion against the light of God. It is a moral, spiritual blindness, not a physical one, we are blind because we love the darkness. Remember what he said in John chapter 3, verse 19? The light has come into the world, but the men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We are blind because we don't want to see the light or be guided by the light or have to confess our works to be works of darkness. And this blindness does not diminish our guilt or remove our accountability. It is part of our guilt. You see, the, the whole chapter it was kind of, has come full circle now. Because at the very beginning, where does it start? 
Jesus heals the blind man and the disciples have a question. Whose fault? Whose guilt? Whose sin? Why was this guy blind? Is it his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, neither. So now it comes all the way to the end and you got the Pharisees saying, hey, if we're one of the blind ones, no guilt in that, right? And Jesus says, wrong. Your blindness is willful. You can see. You've got all the miracles right in front of you. You have the Son of God right in front of you. And you willfully are ignorant. He says you're absolutely accountable. So as we look at this passage here this morning, and what do we see? One blind man given sight of two different kinds. Jesus came in and healed his physical eyesight and then used that to bring about the infusing of his spiritual eyesight and used that as a teaching tool to reach out further with the Gospel. And it has reached all the way down to you and to me. And Jesus comes to give us sight. Our focus has to get right. We have to come to that point of putting our faith in Christ. Our will melds with God's will and we willingly, eagerly accept the Gospel and put our faith in Christ and have our sins removed. And the result of that is that worship that God is seeking. We lovingly bow before Him and celebrate what He's done for us.